Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Spark My Muse. I'm your host, Lisa Colon-Delay, and today on Spark My Muse, we have a returning guest, KJ Ramsey. We conversed with KJ on a previous episode, and we talked about her book, This Too Shall Last. KJ is a trauma-informed licensed professional counselor, therapist, and author. And today we will be talking about The Lord is My Courage, Stepping Through the Shadows of Fear Toward the Voice of Love. This is a really remarkable book. She walks us through Psalms 23 phrase by phrase. And there's a lot of Bible uh, lessons in there in, in a way with different characters from the Bible. But she really deeply explores the landscape of our fear, our trauma, and pain, especially religious trauma and spiritual abuse. And this is where it really got personal in this book. And I feel grateful for your vulnerability, KJ, and I really appreciate that you would come on the podcast to speak about it. Thank you. Um, it's it's good to be back with you. One of the first things I kind of wanted to get out of the way before we dig into the book on specific pages was that you really um, kind of powerfully confront when a pastor really isn't a pastor, a, a kind of inept shepherd these are the kinds of people that just create a lot of damage. And we've seen spiritual abuse, you know, rear its head in news stories and people have expressed a lot of pain and suffering that they've experienced on Twitter. You also attend to that on your Twitter feed and in your counseling practice. You, you come across this a lot. We all do hearing these stories mm -hmm. and your story sounds so brutal that you personally express in the book as you lay it out. And I really wish that it wasn't such a common story. Mm -hmm. You offer mm -hmm. a lot of, even though it's, it's brutal, it's painful, you offer a lot of hope and encouragement 
if we've been hurting in these ways. And that's what I hope that listeners will understand is it's not just KJ complaining <laughs> or saying, you know, this really stinks and everything's corrupt, but that you offer hope and encouragement, even though we have a lot of pain that we have to attend to. And we can tend to trust authorities quite a bit sometimes in religious communities and get into damaging situations or get injured before we even you know, realize we're injured. And mm-hmm. so I just want to pose this question at the onset, looking back now, what wisdom can you offer to avoid hurtful shepherds in the first place now that you have Oof. some time and, and you've looked back? Yeah. I think that the single greatest thing that we can do to avoid being harmed is to practice honoring our own bodies. Our bodies are always speaking to us about how safe we are and how safe our environment and community is. And I think that we find ourselves in relationships of dominance and control much more frequently when we have not been taught to or given permission to honor our body's wise signals about what it means to be safe and well and whole. So I think that the proactive strategy of learning to listen to your body and what she is saying about the people that you are meeting and the services that you are participating in, the practices that you have, all of these things, your body is giving you really wise data about safety and wholeness or the lack thereof. And it will be learning to honor that and hear it that will both prevent harm from happening, but also lead you out of it when you already are in it. I would love to follow that up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Speaking from my own life, there's been a thousand ways I've been taught to ignore those signs and ignore the truth that my body's telling me. You know, whether that's um, you're supposed to listen to authority or you're supposed to listen to men or whatever the signals are that we get directly or indirectly and learning how to not trust yourself feels like a deprogramming. Oh, for sure. Even just beginning to do that, which I which I've been undertaking. It feels almost insurmountable because you you've learned how to not trust yourself in sort of various like subterranean ways for a long time. Yeah. I think a lot of us have been handed a spirituality that is equated with self-hatred and self-mistrust and the sad reality is that it is our bodies that bear truth about our God and our world. And yeah, I I think what you're saying is just dead on with what so many of us have experienced, myself included, um, in the church, across various traditions within the church. Um, There is a very widespread norm of 
pushing the body down, treating the body as something to control, um, something that needs to be kept in check. Yes, our bodies do lots of things that we wish they wouldn't do, uh, but it's our—it's the language of our sensations. It's the language of our emotions that tell us really important things about where we're at. And it's been recovering that sacred wisdom that that is part of myself that God loves and that God made as good. My body is good. Your body is good. That that has been the very place that I've been coming back to life and seeing so many of my clients in therapy and people around the country coming back to life as in reclaiming the body and her goodness. So yes, and I wish it weren't so, so let's make it different. (laughs) Yeah, it's just taking, just knowing helps, like knowing that if you feel like you don't, you can't read signals well from your body or that it's confusing, Mm -hmm. that that would make sense because we've been told to stifle Right. sensations of maybe fear or even just um, those, that, that deep down gut feeling like, yes. no, be polite. Don't, if this feels unsafe or something, just be polite and do the nice yeah. thing. Or, right, right, right. You know, oh, man. Just keep smiling and saying yes. Oh. And, you know, yeah. it's like really interesting about how we develop something that doesn't seem native anymore. Yes, it's um I love what you're saying because I talk about in the book that courage is a practice. And I think what you're describing is exactly why it's so important to uh, recover the word practice and recover the word courage as well, but like we need to practice listening to our bodies and honoring mm-hmm. our bodies and even like learning how to feel our sensations again. A lot of us live Mm. very severed from Mm. the stuff of our limbs and breath and movement. And um, it's, it takes practice when you've lived a numbed, dissociated life to fit into a community. And you've been taught that that's what it means to be faithful is to not feel, Mm. then it is going to take a lot of practice and a lot of courage to begin to do the thing that you've been like, whether explicitly or implicitly taught is wrong (laughs) your whole life. Um, So yeah, it's, it takes, it takes courage. It feels risky to learn how to listen to our bodies. It really does. Yeah. And just for anybody listening, this will seem obvious in the book as you get KJ's message across, but it's a long road and a worthwhile pursuit to continue to, to hear messages from your body. And, but it's just be prepared for doing it for the rest of your life to practice because it's not going to just suddenly click. It's like this incremental, it, I'm speaking from my experience, yes. and it's incremental, very incremental, not just suddenly a light goes on. Right. It's incremental and it's worthwhile. It's so worthwhile. Well, before I get to the next question, I just want to tell listeners that there is absolutely no way 
to truly cover anything but little teeny taste tests in this book <laughs> because there there is a wealth of like when we're talking phrase by phrase from Psalm 23, it's literally like sometimes just one word. And so it's really <laughs> digging deep. And so we're just going to be a, you know, taking a smattering very lightly. And so get the book and dig in because this is hardly uh, a preview or anything like that. It's just <laughs> little snippets. <laughs> so I'll, I'll say that as a caveat to um, something I want to bring out from page 51, where you talk about this idea of staying busy to prove your worth keeping around. Mm. Boy, that hit deep. And you specifically say without green pastures, we focus on striving and shoving. And this idea of green pastures, I love how you bring it out. Um, leading or being the kind of people who invite others into green pasture. If you could just speak a little into that. Yeah. So in Psalm 23, it says that our shepherd makes us lie down in green pastures. And the reality is that sheep will not actually lie down in green pastures where they can rest, where they can eat to their heart's content, um, where they will be nourished unless there is a lack of fighting with other sheep in the flock. And unless there is adequate safety um, there from predators. And what I point out in that section of the book is that a lot of us don't feel the rest, joy, and connection that we long for, the actual experience of being in a green pasture, because we are too busy experiencing or doing uh being shoved around by other sheep who think they've got to push their way to the best grass and that we spend so much time feeling like we have to earn our place in this green pasture so the the norm of of earning, of striving, of there only being so much room here, so I'm going to take what's mine. Uh, that is way more part of our experience of church and spirituality and work and so much uh, than we might want to admit. And I'm trying to call our attention to the way that the Good Shepherd actually says there's enough there's enough space for all of us there's enough space for all of you and I and when you look to me as your peace and as your guide you don't have to shove others to have space and to have sustenance for people who are unfamiliar with your work uh, you speak a lot about this in the book and online and I'm going to, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm not going to be able to quote you. I'll just have to paraphrase, but you talk about people who have non-abled bodies being prophets. I say we are prophets of personhood, of what it means to be loved no matter what. 
Yeah. Unpack that just a little bit more. Yeah. Because that is, that's true whether you have, no matter what your demographics are of your group, whether you're able-bodied or not, it's Mm -hmm. still true. But the people who come with less than perfectly able bodies, which is actually more of us than we'd like to admit. Um, yeah, we're, we're all actually yeah disabled like in some ways. Yeah, we're all aging. Right. We're all dying. We're all dying. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we're going to enter, whether we like it or not, periods of illness or injury or old age. And so we're temporarily abled. And so we have to yes. get it through our heads what personhood is about, because it's definitely not about being abled, because that's seldom yes. the case. Right. It's like a very temporary thing. Yeah. So I, for listeners who don't know, I am disabled. Um, I live with several diseases and conditions that cause a lot of pain, cause me to have a lot of limitations, um, and to need a ton of treatment, which means I spend a lot of my life, especially currently, in bed recovering from treatments. And just to like stay alive and stay from keep 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 from getting really bad infections and all the things so I write from the intimate knowledge of being in a body that cannot do everything I wish she could do and what I have found and I think this is a I just want to say it's a it's a paradox. It is a hard and a painful thing um, to feel that you are in a body that seems to be broken and maybe even betraying you, betraying what you want for your life. Um, but it is it has been being in this body, this body who reminds me so frequently of her needs for rest and care and nourishment her great dependence on interdependence. Um, It's being in this body that has shown me that I am loved, whether I can produce anything, perform well, or yeah, accomplish anything. Because uh, there's a lot of times when I have to set everything down and just spend the whole week in my bed, like where the most thing, the like greatest thing I can get done in a day is like get myself to my bathroom 15 feet away. And uh, it's not fun. It is not fun. But like learning that I can set things down and that somehow there's enough time and space and maybe even money um, for God to provide for me and like that the people in my life can love me like I am. Um, This body teaches me how to trust and she teaches me to be, to be brave enough to believe that I'm beloved even when I can't get out of bed. Um, And I think that that's the truth for all of us. It's just that People like me get to, like, we have to face it. We have to face it very uh, intensely and acutely. Um, Because I could, if I 
if I didn't face my own innate belovedness, I would become a bully to my body or a beggar of grace that I think I'm not worthy to receive. And I, I just, I think when I keep facing that, like, even in my limitations, I am so loved by God and upheld by God and loved by my people, loved by my spouse and my friends and my team. Um, I, my life has so much joy in it. Like even when I'm spending half of my month in bed and, and I, I think that's what we all need to hear is that your life can have goodness and love in it. Even when you are not able to do very much or accomplish very much. Thank you for that. You're welcome. There is a portion on page 160, SSP, Safe and Sound Protocol, and it's in the You Are With Me section. And I was hoping that maybe you could speak to this a bit so people can start to understand this. I thought it was, um, you know, really... It really stuck with me, and I was hoping you could explain it a bit. Yeah, so um, the Safe and Sound Protocol is a modality for therapy that was developed by the neuroscientist Stephen Porges, and he's the guy who founded polyvagal theory, which is a theory of really like how our nervous systems are wired for safety and connection and the way that your body can come back to a state of connection and calm um, even when faced with great stressors. So that's Stephen Porges and SSP safe and sound protocol is really just this like listening tool. It's like a, an oral auditory uh, therapeutic tool that by listening um, to music, this, these sounds, we can retrain the body, the nervous system to come out of states of stress more effectively, come back to a state of social connectedness. Um, so part of the, the vagus nerve, which is your body's longest cranial nerve and the major pathway of nervous system regulation of you feeling good (laughs) in your skin and your story and connected to people socially that a major way that that nerve can be activated toward regulation is through our ears, through the middle ear. And so by teaching, by like giving people this, experience of essentially like taking out the high and low frequency sounds in music, um, this particular set of music that we play, it gives them, gives their nervous system room to experience the like, the goodness of a state of social connection and to not be as either hypervigilant, on edge, in a state where your body's saying like things don't feel safe things don't feel good or hypo vigilant where you're just like 
shut off from your sensations, shut down, discouraged. So it's just a passive therapeutic modality. But I think the, the thing that's important for everybody, whether you have access to a therapist who uses safe and sound or not, is that listening is a vehicle for changing your neural state. So what you hear, and as I talk about in the book, what you see, uh, you know, there's different pathways too. Our eyes are one of them too. But listening particularly can be a means of grace to move from a state of stress, from overwhelm, from discouragement into peace. Um, And when we, you know, sit by a babbling brook um, or you hear birds chirping or you um, like one of the principles is less is more for the nervous system. So you lower the amount of sound around you if you're stressed out um, it's going to help your body return back to a state of connection more quickly than if you didn't change the context of what you're hearing. Yeah. Thank you. I, I wanted to make sure that got out there a little bit because I think that's another one of those things about the sensations of the body, how, uh, you know, the, the body is a little bit, um, what's the word, disrespected compared to the mind, if you will, oh, the thoughts, yes. you know? <laughs> so when we realize, <laughs> oh, that's right, the the brain is the body. <laughs> uh, how about that? <laughs> it really is. You know it. Yeah, yeah. So it's like trying to get some of that in the forefront of people's minds is that if you're really juiced up, you're really anxious there's all these components that, that might be extra excited and it's kind of perfectly understandable because there's so much your senses are taking in and that maybe even you've shut down because your brain and your, your nervous system was like, yeah, no, we're done. (laughs) Right. There's so like, there's so much more going into you feeling stressed out and awful or mm. shut down and in despair than simply you not believing that God is good and with yeah. you. There's so much yeah. more. Oh, that's so well said. It, it kind of dovetails into the next thing I was going to ask. It's in the They Comfort Me section on page 171. And you write that the hardest aspect of practicing courage is mm. developing a capacity to hold hurt and hope in our hearts at the same time. Listening to the voice of God is thinking of the rod and the staff. I used to think of the rod and the staff as punishment tools. That's how they were applied to my behind. Many times. The belt, but, the, the rod and the yes, belt. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And it had to be screaming involved, you know, um, but you know, our shepherd, our kind shepherd does things for our good, not to calm his own anger or something, you know, to uh, mm-hmm. meet out retribution and revenge like parents might or whatever, whoever might try. But what you're saying about the capacity to hold hurt and hope in our hearts at the same time, it, it feels radical because it's, I guess it's because it's so hard to do. Oh man. Yeah, it is. And 
And I want to point out, um, you know this from reading it, but for listeners, the context of the psalmist saying, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, is not the shepherd disciplining the sheep. It is actually in the context of the, the, the rod and the staff are there to protect the sheep from external threats and to show the sheep that the shepherd is near. Um, we, yes, there is stuff in other passages of scripture that's like, you know, God's discipline is there for our good, but this is not about that. <laughs> and I think it's really important for us to hear that the the rod, for example, is there as the shepherd's first line of defense to attack an oncoming predator from devouring his sheep. Like, God rises up in anger to protect you. That's the context. And then the staff is the shepherd's is often used in addition to like pulling sheep out of briars, um, out of bushes when they're stuck and injured. The staff's also used often to just like be rest on the sheep's shoulders while while the shepherd's walking next to them as as though to say, hey, I'm here. I'm with you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's an extension of the shepherd and the shepherd's care. It's like a another uh, part of the shepherd's voice or part of the shepherd's care to mm-hmm. keep the staff nearby and offer that guidance. And I think that seeing it in that context, you're like, well, actually, that sounds that sounds really nice. I was I was like, okay, you know, in my mind, it was like, look here we out. go. Here comes <laughs> the staff or the rod, and and the staff's gonna if the staff doesn't beat you up, the rod definitely will. You know, it really well, seemed scary. Yeah. I and that's why it's so important for me to make it extremely clear that mm-hmm. that's not what's happening here because what happens in abusive relationships is that we are told we are loved but we are treated with violence verbal violence physical violence sexual violence psychological violence we're treated in ways that diminish our personhood and take away our power and God is not saying you need to equate comfort with being crushed. Mm. Like we don't have to find our comfort in being punished. That is not actually healthy spirituality. And that is Mm. not what God's word says. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to return people to the goodness that your comfort here in the context of Psalm 23 is that God rises up on your behalf to protect you. And God takes the initiative to remind you that he walks with you or that God's Mm -hmm. self walks with you. That's Mm -hmm. your comfort. We don't, you don't have to put up with this twisted narrative that God only loves you if God punishes you. Like, (laughs) I'm sorry, that is not the whole truth. That's not the whole truth. 
Or, or even that he would get some joy in that. that, that oh, it's like being, disgusting. That's disgusting. Yeah, it's, a, it's abusive. It, I think if, if, if God, if someone's depicting God as any sort of abusive parent, that is a reflection of them or how they were parented. It's not a reflection of someone who is, is so loving and gracious towards us. And it, and it is also, it twisted, it's also a reflected, a reflection of the spirituality that we have been handed because this teaching that like god disciplines those he loves and then like you take that and extrapolate it um onto so much and then you equate um spiritual authority with god and like a church a pastor or a leader has the permission to exert that kind of authority over someone of course we think of god as this twisted tyrant like we're afraid if i don't please you you're coming down with your rod and your staff to get me like so yeah it's it's both a reflection of our experience of of our pastors our parents our caregivers and it is the like milieu of Mm -hmm. what we have been taught it means to be in relationship to god right and and just just because unkindness and disregard have been passed down for generations and done wrong in in antiquity doesn't mean we should be doing it now like it's not like yeah people might have gotten beat up by their parents in antiquity it doesn't mean that god's interested in doing that to us i, I you know it's like we got to those are that's a false god that's a god that is um abusive and not worth worshiping because he is capricious and hateful so why bother loving yeah. some someone like that you might as well just take your chances and do what you want and get struck down because loving an entity like that right we're not talking about some a being worthy of love but apparently that's not the case apparently we have a loving shepherd so it's like you have to see it the whole way through so as you as you encourage us in these in these different portions of the the psalm, it, it's like kind of redeeming that whole image and kind of saying, what is a shepherd really like? The shepherd isn't really like any abusive person you've ever met. It's nothing like that. Nothing like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love in part um, the part that's so beautifully written on page 118 in my cup overflow section where you write, don't, do we not realize we are living liturgies. We are containers of God's care. All that is needed is to practice staying there at the table, ready to be filled. And uh, getting to the point of, so getting to the point of living an overflowing life can seem really far off. So what helps you personally wait at the table to be filled? Well, my need sure helps. <laughs> um, sensing my need to be filled does keep me coming to the table for the shepherd's hand to shepherd the shepherd slash host um, to pour into me. And I think that um, a lot of times, a lot of us live numbed from our needs by staying checked out from how we're actually doing uh, by continuing to just scroll at all hours of the day and night um, on our phones and 
remain as busy as possible. Uh, but when I sense my own lack, um, when I sense my own weariness and restlessness, uh, my irritability, the ways that I treat others um, far less lovingly than I wish that I did in the moment, when I can stay awake to the things that I don't love about being human and being me, it actually, rather than being a source of shame or self-hatred, is a prompt to be seen and soothed by this good shepherd. And so practically what that means is like today, um, I didn't, I didn't sleep well last night. And, and so I moved around my schedule this morning so I could sleep longer and just like got more sleep, (laughs) even though I, I don't like sleeping in, um, but I needed it. I needed more sleep. And then I still was kind of antsy. And normally I would um, practice centering prayer in the morning. And instead of like forcing myself to tolerate silence in a way that my body just wasn't loving, I was feeling just a little too triggered. I just listened to a song, um, it's just called, a song called Mother Bird, Mother Bear um, by Leslie Jordan. But it's one of the ones I pull up sometimes. Cause I, I can't, I don't really like, uh, most, you know, contemporary Christian music, uh, is pretty triggering for me and gross to me, but I like that one and kind of like the, the mothering nature of God. And I just, just laid there on my study floor and like let myself breathe while listening to that song over and over again. That was a way that like my body could safely be soothed. Um, and be refilled so that I then had enough, um, enough energy to be able to show up in what came next in my day from a place of being grounded in the fact that I'm loved and I'm going to be okay. Um, and that's the kind of pattern, that's the kind of rhythm that, you know, some of I'll, you know, a lot of my days aren't necessarily not going to like not sleep at night and then have to sleep in. Um, but the rhythm is always there of like, there are things that I need to do so that my body can remember my story is that I am someone God is always with and God always cares about and God always responds to. Therefore, I can show up in the world with security that I am loved no matter what, and that the people that I see are too. That requires um, practice and rhythms. So really, you just gave me a really great example about being a living liturgy. Yeah. Is that how you would describe it? That would be, that'd be kind of how you'd sum it up, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, even the experience of like, my body's limitations, my body's uh, brokenness of like, I don't know what it was that kept me from sleeping last night, but that she couldn't sleep last night is part of the liturgy of this. Like that's a honest confession of 
something's off in my body. And I, and that just like a, the, the procession of a liturgy leading up to the Eucharist, like that confession then is what leads me to the table experience of them laying there on my study floor, um, soaking in God's presence as real. I think that's the, the rising, the falling and rising rhythm of every day. And we get to embody the liturgy of the church in the liturgy that our limbs and our lungs, our minds, our bodies need. Mm. That is really well said. I wanted to pull out this one part on page 173 where you say, being honest about our hurt helps us to hope. And one of the reasons that stuck out to me is that if we're not used to even acknowledging some of the hurt that we have, whether it's buried pain or even you know something physical or something that we won't pay attention to uh, that might manifest as physical as well, it's something that's going to come up right away that, okay, when I'm, when I'm honest about this, that will give me hope. You know, it, it might feel like if I'm honest about this, that's going to give me some pain and that's going to give me some consternation and turmoil, right? But mm-hmm. when you put it like that, that that's what leads to hope. And then you add that courage is a continuous choice. That is one of the more encouraging things that I pulled out because mm. I have to kind of gather myself to not not so much to be honest about my hurt I think I'm being as honest as I'm able to be but not trying to be deceptive or something like that but it's also to like when something comes up not running from it or shutting it down but being like yeah this this is hurting me and then moving to a point of okay now that that's out there now I have reason to hope and thinking Mm -hmm. of it that way Yeah, I think we all implicitly fear that if we're honest about how hard things are, how much we have been harmed, then we will feel ashamed and stuck that we're not, things aren't supposed to, we think that things aren't supposed to be this hard and we should be better at this whole being human and having faith thing. And therefore, if we're honest that it is hard, like we are failures also we're so afraid that it's not going to get better so if we feel I, I think I experience with so many with my clients especially like there's this fear that if you feel the sadness that's all you're gonna feel and it won't stop and I think that is more of an expression of our culture's illiteracy of emotionality than it is the reality of how our bodies work and how emotions work. <laughs> then it so emotions are like weather patterns. They're like storms. They blow through. They don't always last. They don't last forever. And I think when we can learn the rhythm of how emotions and sensations work and and emotions really are just the the 
the meaning that we give to the sensations that we have um, and the energy that's, you know, taking us into different places and guiding our decision-making. But when we can receive that, like, oh, sadness doesn't stay forever. Anger is meant to carry me somewhere and to protect what matters. Like when you, when we learn this language, um, we don't have to be so afraid of getting stuck in how we feel. Emotions are energy. They're energy in motion. They're meant to take you somewhere good. They're never going to sink you into a pit forever. They're actually the, the very energy that God has wired into you, has, has um, painted into you to make the picture of your life beautiful. I just think that's really important for people to know because it's, it's something that I see a lot, this fear of feeling. So it's honesty. If, you're, if we're honest about how we actually feel, that honesty then gives us somewhere to go. And it gives us uh, clarity about how our needs can be met. But if we're not honest, that's when we're stuck. Because we, we don't have a path on which to walk. You don't know if you need to go left or right. Right. No reference point. Yeah. You don't have a reference point. Yeah. That's, that's well said. Well, I wanted to wind up, but I wanted to make sure I gave you some time to make a final point or to speak about something I didn't get to cover and ask you any kind of final word to listeners, anything you want to send us off. Hmm. No, I just, um, I think I just want to express gratitude. Um, I, when I wrote this book, well, first of all, when I started writing it, I, I knew I was writing about practicing courage, but I didn't really plan on writing a book that got so much into religious trauma. And, but it, it turns out that's the story that I had to tell. And, and I'm really glad that I did. But I did not dream <laughs> that there would be just so many people um, that would reach out and that have stories like mine of being harmed in faith communities and harmed by Christian people. Mm-hmm. And um, like I knew that we were out there, but I just like now I know mm-hmm. how many of us are out here in the wilderness And I guess what I want to say is to those who are in the wilderness and feel exiled from the church, exiled from the faith that you once had or you once grew up with, um, God still loves you. God is for you. God is not a cruel tyrant. God does not seek to punish you for being human. And God delights in your courage and your audacity to heal and be whole. And there are so many of us out here in the wilderness, wandering around, not sure where we belong or who our people are anymore. 
you belong with us <laughs> and there are oh. a lot of us. And um, I, I just, I want you to know that you remain beloved by people like me and I believe by our good shepherd, God. Mm. Thank you for saying that. I think that a lot of people need to hear that. And it's true that um, the people who are hurting, we need each other. We need to be a community for each other um, because sometimes, you know, Christians are known for shooting their wounded, you know, continuing to wound the wounded. Absolutely. And so the people who have empathy who've been through it can be the wounded healers, the people with the most um, yes. compassion for that because it's, it's hurt them personally. And, and um, I think that there's a lot to be said for, for people who are, have learned to be more tender and maybe it wouldn't have made such an impact if they hadn't have been so hurt. Mm -hmm. So everybody, the book is called the Lord is my courage stepping through the shadows of fear towards the voice of love. I urge you to get it. And thank you, KJ, for being my guest. It has been an honor and a joy. Thank you so much. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.